0: Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Father, I pray that you'd open up our understanding to this whole realm of a life of trust in God. That's the basis of our life as Christians. But I pray, Lord, that we would learn daily more and more to trust You for everything, temporally as well as eternally. In Jesus' name, Amen. I've never met a person without faith. Every person I've ever met, Christian or non-Christian, has some element of faith. You have to have faith to live. To get into your car in the morning, you need faith. You believe that when you put the key in and turn it to the right, it's going to go boom and roll down the street. It takes faith to go to a restaurant. And some restaurants require more faith than others, depending on what kind of a restaurant they are. But you trust that the food that you're eating is going to be palatable and will cause you to have energy and grow and so forth. In fact, I've told you before, but when my son was much younger, Nathan would go to the dinner table and say, Lord, thank you for this food, and please help it not to be poisoned in Jesus' name. Of course, my wife kind of looked at him, poison? But it takes faith. takes faith to go to the bank, cash a check, and probably in the next few years you will need more faith to do that. Because that little piece of paper which has intrinsically no value at all, you trust the name of the person who wrote you the check or the company behind the check that you're going to get money from it, that it's worth something. There are many things you do not understand, yet you live by faith. Some of you don't understand electricity. I fully don't understand it, but I trust that when I flip the switch, the light's going to come on. But biblical faith, trusting in God, is ridiculed by many, many people. In fact, one person said, faith can be defined briefly as an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. In other words, you're dumb if you believe in God. It's a pipe dream. It's improbable, and it's illogical to believe in any essence or force or personal God. It was Soren Kierkegaard who said, Believing or living by faith is like taking a leap into darkness. Biblical faith is not a leap in the dark. Nor is it presumption. Nor is it simply optimism or determination. The idea in the New Testament is a full heart acceptance based upon something. A full heart acceptance based upon something. And it's more than just an intellectual, I believe God exists. For many people say they believe that. The devil believes that, but he trembles, but he never really accepted the Lord. It's a full heart acceptance that translates into following the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, you might say that faith is betting your life on Jesus Christ. It's betting your temporal life that he's going to take care of you and see you from wherever you're at now till death and you bet your eternal life. On Jesus Christ. You're betting your life upon Him. That's faith. We trust the Lord because there are times that we're in situations we do not understand. Yet we trust Him because we know Him. When my son was an infant and a toddler, I used to throw him up in the air. And people would say, Oh, don't do that. You could drop him. They'd get all worried. He was never worried, he was laughing. He enjoyed it. He liked me spinning him around 10 feet off the ground. Even, even though he was in weird situations looking at the cement backwards, he trusted me. And I never dropped him. And we're in difficult situations as we've seen last week. It's an endurance race sometimes. But because we know him, we trust him. There was a skeptical physician who was treating a Christian patient. The doctor said, you know, I, I don't quite get it. I don't understand faith. I believe in God. I suppose I believe in Jesus Christ. I don't acknowledge that I have big doubts regarding Jesus Christ, but I don't think I'm saved. What's really the matter with me? What's the difference between you and I? The patient said, Doc, two, three weeks ago, I believed that if I got sick, you'd help me. But two days ago, I let you cut me open. I put myself under your knife. I don't quite understand medical science or all that you did, but I trusted you enough to let you operate on me. And he said, you know, you're also giving me this medicine, that is this yellow goop. I don't know what it does, but I trust that you do. I'm entrusting my life into your hands. That's faith, he said. It's not just I think God can do, but my life is underneath his care. I trust that he will do. If he doesn't do it, I'm sunk. Now, that patient's faith did not save him. It was the medicine and the remedy that saved him. But faith took hold of the remedy and believed in that position. Now, the biblical kind of faith as described in this chapter is more than just the faith of going to the bank with a paycheck or driving your car or going to a restaurant. It's more than natural faith. It is a gift that God gives a person to enter into a life of faith. You don't come up with it on your own. You don't sit there and close your eyes and hyperventilate, I have faith, I have faith. It's a gift of God, Paul said. He said, you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Which means you can never boast and say, I'm a great man of faith. No, you have a great God who gave you a great gift of faith. We're just simple people to whom God has unlocked the door of salvation and given us a gift. Now, in verse 1 through verse 3, is sort of an introduction to the chapter." He describes the essence of faith in verse 1, the effect of faith in verse 2, and an example of faith in verse 3. He does that all before he gets into the individual applications in the lives of the people of chapter 11. As we begin, we've just read the first three verses. Let me read them to you again in the Living Bible. Though the Living Bible is not an accurate translation, it puts it in layman's terms and it helps describe what's going on. Uh, It says, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it up ahead. Men of God in days of old were famous for their faith. That's verse 2. Verse 3 says, By faith, that is by believing God, we know that the world and the stars, in fact all things that were made, were made at God's command, and they were all made from things that can't be seen. The whole idea is that you grasp a hold of something even though you can't actually see it yet. You might say that faith is putting all of your eggs in God's basket and counting your blessings before they hatch. You can't see what's up ahead, but you know the one in whom you've placed your trust. That's good enough for you. You trust Him. You have faith in Him. Please do not misunderstand that. And I think it's good to just mention something as we are kind of starting out this series of Messages on faith and men of faith. There is a movement called the faith movement. which has, That's a good name. Anytime you move in faith, that's a good movement. But the faith movement is comprised of people who teach positive confession faith. And they teach that faith is a force that you can use at whim. It's a powerful force, whether you're a believer or a non-believer. And your words are the containers that release that force. So when you want something done, you confess it. And of course, if you're a Christian, you want to tack on in Jesus' name. And so you confess things. If you're sick, you say, I confess healing. And of course, if you're really a man or a woman of faith, you got to say it with the right prayer voice. You just don't say in Jesus' name. It's in Jesus' name. And all of a sudden, that's going to work. And make God go, "Oh, oh, I'll do it then. That's not faith in God. That's faith in faith. And that's different from faith. Faith to be faith in God is I trust God based upon His promises, not upon my whims. I don't run around with this power just going boom, 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 like this shotgun of faith shooting things that I want done. No way. God will not be manipulated. It's faith in His already given promises in His Word, even though you can't see it up ahead. Now, there's two parallel phrases in the first verse. Uh, You could split it up. One, the substance of things hoped for. Two, the evidence of things not seen. That is the essence of faith. It's not a full theological description. It sort of boils it down to the essence. First of all, the substance of things hoped for. You might translate it, the firm, solid, confident assurance or foundation. It comes from two Greek words, to stand and under. The idea is that you've got a firm foundation underneath you, a firm footing, and it's a solid, confident assurance. It's not, I hope so. It's more than that. Faith is not this nostalgic feeling that someday things may get better than they are. I'm in a real bad situation now and I just hope things get better. That's not faith. Faith is not a country western song, all right? You know, somebody once said, what do you get when you play country-western song backwards? You get your wife back, your children back, and everything else back. It's funny, but a lot of the themes of the songs is I lost my wife, my dog bit me, got run over by a tractor, but I hope things get better after this. That's not faith. Faith is a solid, bold, confident assurance. That's what the word substance means. William Barclay put it this way. So often we have a vague kind of faith, the wistful longing, a wistful longing, that the promises of Jesus are true. But the only way to enter into them is to believe in them with the clutching intensity of a drowning man. The clutching intensity of a drowning man. I'm clinging on to you. You're all I have. You're all I need. What do you do with the promises of God? Every Bible student should be asked that. Well, I underline them. Ah, that's great. Somebody say, well, I go few steps further. I memorize them. In fact, here's my memory verses for the week. Hey, that's fine to underline them and to memorize them. But do you use them and you read it and go, that is true. It's the Word of God. I will hang my hat. I will bet my life on that. Clutching intensity of a drowning man. Some of you got income tax checks back this last year. And I know it was a surprise that the government actually gave you money what did you do when you got that check? Probably you got really excited. I've got, I got that much money back. Oh, there's bills I have to pay. Oh, I'm so excited. Did you get that excited when you read the Scripture that morning and God promised to take care of you? Did you have the same bold confidence? There's a promise from God. I know that God will take care of me. I have bills to pay, but I have substance of things hoped for. I place my trust in Jesus Christ. That's the first phrase. There was a Bible translator who went off to a foreign country to translate the Bible into the language of the people of that culture. And he was translating John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, you know the rest. He could translate every word in that verse except one, the word believe, whoever believes in him. He had difficulty with that. He didn't, couldn't find the right word or phrase to transliterate it. And uh, he was trying to come up with something that they could relate with. He was discussing it with the natives. Finally, one of them got up, ran into the tent, lay down on the cot, and muttered something in his native language. The translator said, what did he say? The interpreter said, the man said, I will put all of my weight on this cot. translator said, that's it. That's the phrase. And this is how he translated John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever throws his whole weight on him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's the substance of things hoped for. Next phrase, the evidence of things not seen. That's a parallel phrase. It says the same thing, but it takes it a step further. The idea is that you have a firm conviction. In fact, other translations put it that way. It acts upon or it's a satisfying conviction. A man of faith not only has a solid assurance of the future, but he acts upon it. He lives according to what he says he believes. Look ahead at verse 5. No, look ahead, way ahead, to verse 27. It begins way back in verse 23, speaking of Moses, but verse 27. By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses made it through all of that tough stuff in Egypt by seeing God who is invisible. Faith is a firm grip on an unseen fact. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. There was a, a grocer who was in his basement in the grocery store. He was working, putting away things on the shelf, and he looked up in the basement to the first floor of the grocery store to the little trap door that was there that went into the cellar, and he saw his little five-year-old son looking down it was darkness the little kid couldn't see anything but of course the man looking from the darkness into the light could see his son he said son it's me jump the boy said I can't jump I can't see you The dad said, but I can see you and you know me you know it's me and you know I love you and I'm gonna catch you jump I can't jump jump He finally jumped when he took the first step into that dark hole, that substance became evidenced. It was more than just, I know, I believe, but it's the conviction of things not seen. I can't see it, but I'm convinced that if I jump, my dad's going to catch me. Well, it's the same thing with us. If we trust in a God whom we do not see or we cannot audibly hear, it's because our faith has substance, and when we act upon it, it's evidenced that we believe it it's the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen and the rest of the chapter gives us examples of men and women of faith who live like that i think of shadrach meshach and abednego they were part of that team in babylon and nebuchadnezzar said bow down before this gold image and if you don't i'll throw you into the fiery furnace everybody bowed of course who wants to get fired up that way but shadrach and meshach and abednego stood up so we're not going to bow they had to make a choice to obey Nebuchadnezzar, whom they could see with their eye, or trust God whom they could not see. And their response to Nebuchadnezzar was simply this, O oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Our God is able to deliver us. But if he doesn't, in case he doesn't do it, if we go in there and we burn up, if he doesn't deliver us, we will not serve your gods. Or what about Noah? Noah lived... By faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Look ahead at verse 7. By faith, keep in mind the definition. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Can you imagine being Noah? You had to go all by God's promise. Noah, it's going to rain. Build a boat. Noah had never seen rain. He didn't know what rain was. Up to that point, it had never rained on the earth. It was simply a mist that watered the earth. Noah, it's going to rain. What's that? Don't worry about it. Just build a boat. A big boat. 120 years worth of building a boat in the middle of Iraq. And for 120 years, he preached that God was going to bring judgment on the earth. How do you think people responded? Right, Moses, a little too long in that old Iraqi sun, I think. But he preached for 120 years, even though he couldn't see it. He believed it, and he acted upon it. That's a life of faith. We have other examples. A notable one is uh, Jericho and Joshua, verse 30. Let's skip ahead. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Imagine being a military general, giving orders to military men, something like this. Okay, men, we have our orders. God spoke to me. Yeah, really? What do we do? We march? Yeah, we march. And we sing. You mean like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da? No, no, no. We sing worship songs to the Lord. And we shout. And we blow the trumpets. Okay, and then we charge, right? No, we just trust and the walls are going to fall flat. Uh, Would you say that one more time, General? Uh, You mean they're just going to fall down by themselves? We don't get to, like, get in there with the sword? No, you're just going to trust the Lord. That's what he told me. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So putting it all together, it's a firm foundation that moves us to action. Faith to be useful must be used. It must be exercised or it is invalid. It's like a wealthy woman who had a vast array of jewels. She kept it in the vault of a bank. Her favorite possession was a string of pearls. But because it is a fact that pearls discolor without contact with human skin, a bank secretary once a week would wear them and go out to lunch with her friends. Of course, she was guarded by two policemen. But that brief contact with the skin kept the pearls from discoloring. It's what faith is. You must use it. It must come in contact with the human condition for it to be valid. That's the essence of faith. Verse 2 is the effect of faith. And we read the simple statement for by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony, or they had a good report. There are several translations of it. It could simply mean that by faith, the elders, the men and women of faith that are written about in this chapter, left us a good example, a good testimony. But another translation, and other, several of them say, by faith the saints of old, listen, won God's approval. That's the idea here. By faith they won God's approval. God looked at their life and said, you've got my stamp of approval because you live by faith. Now look back, look up at verse 5 where it talks about Enoch. He was translated so he didn't see death, and he was not found because God translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. They left a good witness because they were confident in God, that moved him to action, and when they did, God put his stamp of approval on their lives. That's important. It's important to know that the effect of faith is that we can sense that we have God's approval for what we do. I can't think of actually a better feeling, or better experience than to know that God is pleased with my life. I don't care what anybody else says about it. I don't like what you did or said, well, you know what? I'd rather have God say that. And I'd rather hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the testimony and the effect of faith. And you know what? Life can become difficult. There will be difficult circumstances. And faith Allows you to bear the burden of the pain and the discomfort because you know that at least God is well pleased with me. Would you look ahead again? I'm doing that a lot, but as sort of an introduction to the chapter, look at verse 35. It talks about all the great feats of faith. And in verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. You go, oh, all right. I like this life of faith. Sounds exciting. The dead are going to be raised, but read on. And others were tortured. Uh, Let's just stop right there, shall we? Uh, No, let's read on. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings, scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were cut in two with a saw. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. You may respond, oh boy, I can't wait. The life of faith sounds pretty devastating to me. I don't think I want this life of faith. But in the midst of that, you have the satisfaction that you've got God's approval. That'll take you through lots of stuff. There were some traveling musicians, minstrels, going from town to town... They played to the crowds in different villages. But lately, things were tough. People weren't coming out to see the minstrels anymore. They couldn't afford the fee to, to watch them perform, even though it was a meager sum. One evening in the town, the minstrels got together, and one of the young guys said, Hey, let's just give it up. Let's quit. Let's throw in the towel. Last night, we had a handful of people outside. It's starting to snow right now. We'll probably have no one show up. Uh, it's been tough on the road. Let's quit. They looked to the older leader, the minstrel, who'd been there a long time, I said, what's your recommendation? He said, I think we should go on. We have a responsibility to the people who paid money to see us, even if it's two or one. Don't worry about the crowd. Let's give it our best shot. So they went out that night encouraged, thinking perhaps this was their last performance. When it was all over, they just felt good about their performance. They gave it their best. And the older minstrel came, trembling with a note in his hand. And he said, somebody handed me this in the audience. Let me read it to you. And he quieted his troop down, opened the note, and it said, Thanks for the beautiful performance. Signed, your king. It was worth it to them that night. Their king was watching them. That small handful of people, they were ready to quit, but they gained the approval of their king. Well, no matter what you would be into, whatever God would send you to do, though there might not be many people who come to your little group or kinship or whatever, God's watching And through faith and men of old, these heroes of faith gained God's approval. That's why Paul the Apostle told the Corinthians, We make it our aim in life, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to the Lord. The life of faith has its rewards. Partially you are rewarded here. Mostly you are rewarded later. There is a payoff now, and that is the knowledge that I'm pleasing God I'm satisfied, I have peace, I have meaning, I have direction. But you've also got to know that that's a small amount of the total payoff. Most of your rewards do not come now, they will come later. Hold out for them. The rewards are more than just peace and so on and so forth now. To be able to go through pain and discomfort, it's knowing that what's coming up ahead, it's going to take God all of eternity to demonstrate His love to you. Did you know that? Paul the Apostle wrote to the Romans, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The life of faith is an adventure. I'll tell you one thing, it's not boring. When you go for broke, when you look down that little trap door and God says, jump, okay, you're going to be in for an exciting adventure. You don't know what's up ahead. You're just trusting God. He won't tell you the whole plan. He'll just say, hold on tight, we're going for broke. And it will be exciting, an exciting adventure. I think if you ask the average person what they want out of life, they would give you one answer, I want to be happy. Most people I ask say that, I want to be happy, whatever it takes, I want to be happy. I believe them. I believe that people want to be happy. But I also believe that most of them look for it in the wrong place. They go down roads except the road of faith and trust in God. They choose every other form, and they end up going through one senseless absurdity to another, not fulfilling them, because they've never tapped into that life of faith. A famous psychologist wrote, One-third of all of my cases are suffering from no clinically definable neurosis, but from the senselessness and the emptiness of their lives. This, he said, can be described as the general neurosis of our time." I was reading not too long ago of a young man who decided to go to Hollywood to seek fame and fortune. He said he had three dreams that he wanted fulfilled in his life. Number one, he wanted his name up in lights. He wanted to see his name flashing on his billboards. Number two, he wanted to own and drive a Rolls-Royce. Number three, he wanted to marry a beauty contest winner. And he achieved all of those goals before he was 30 years old. By the time he was 30, he said he was totally depressed, he had no goals left to fulfill. They were empty to him, they were senseless to him. Like Alexander the Great, probably the greatest warrior of history. He swept through Macedonia, went into Assyria, went through Babylon, conquered all of the known world. He was 31 years old and he sat as a drunk man in Babylon weeping because there was no more kingdoms to conquer. He was an aggressive type A personality. I can't believe it, there's no more people I can conquer. Nothing left to live for and he died when you just barely turn 32 years of age, depressed in a drunken stupor in Babylon. Nothing left to live for. Life lacks meaning and substance when you seek other things other than the reason you were created, a relationship with God. You just hop from one experience to another, but there's no fulfillment. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, there's a payoff. You get God's stamp of approval. You get the peace and the satisfaction that you're pleasing Him. It's an adventure. And you get what's coming up ahead in glory. Verse 3 now. We go now to the example of faith. And you'll see why He chose this example in a minute. By faith, verse 3, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Speaking of creation so that the things which are seen, things which are visible around us, were not made of things which are visible. In other words, the visible world was composed of things that we cannot see with the naked eye. Now, the reason the author goes to this example is because he's speaking to young Jewish Christians who already believed in Jesus Christ but were tempted to move back into Judaism and perform the works of the law rather than exercise a life of faith. So he says, let me tell you about the life of faith. You already believe certain things. You already live by faith. As young Jewish Christians, you believe the first tenet of the Scripture, that God created the heavens and the earth. The reason I believe the author chose this one is that if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, the rest is pretty easy. I hear people say, I have real problems with this Red Sea idea of waters standing upright and people walking through on dry land. That's bogus or... Jonah being swallowed by this big fish, that's bogus. It all goes back to creation. And a lot of people have trouble with that. But I found if you can swallow the first verse of the Bible, you can swallow the one about Jonah and the whale. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he's saying, you already have this faith, believers. You weren't there when God did it. You didn't watch him create the heavens and the earth, but you believe it. You already live by a certain kind of faith. Notice the word, though. It doesn't say God created the world, but we understand that the worlds were fl- framed. It's plural. It's the physical universe and all of its administrations and all of its operations. Everything, God just spoke it into existence. He didn't have to work on it in a laboratory and say, Oh, I can't figure this one out. E equals MC squared. Okay, that's a good one. Let me." He just spoke it. He just said, Light be. Whew, light was. He didn't struggle with it. This statement is exactly what unbelievers often have most difficulty with. They go, okay, listen, wait a minute. I'll be a Christian, but don't ask me to believe that naive story about God creating Adam and Eve, putting them in a garden, and so on and so forth. That was a myth. That was an allegory. We're sophisticated now. This is the 20th century, almost the 21st century. We've evolved from slime, and we've evolved from different forms of creation or uh, of... uh, other formations in the past. You've got to know something. That is the general consensus among many people today. You know that. But it's not the only theory. Did you know that scientists in the scientific community are disagreeing as to the origin of man? There are several theories. and There's been popular theories in the past. The nebula theory, the steady state theory, the big bang theory. And as to the origins of the universe, even non-believing scientists, non-Christian scientists, do not believe, some of them, in evolution. One of them, Professor T.L. Moore, University of Cincinnati, said, To talk about the evolution from sea slime to amoeba and from amoeba to a self-conscious man means nothing. It is simply the easy solution of a thoughtless brain. I insist that at least evolution be taught as a theory, which it used to be taught as. Now they say, no, it's not a theory. We know it's a fact. But, folks, the very heart of scientific method is the reproducibility of any experiment. That's what constitutes scientific reality. That is, you conduct an experiment with certain characteristics and you observe that experiment You conduct the same experiment at another time, perhaps the next day, with all of the factors being the same, make the same observations. You reproduce that with all the same factors, and you come up with scientific description of that process. That's why evolution is a theory. You cannot reproduce the origin of the heavens and the earth. There were not humans who recorded it. No one was there thinking, oh, yeah, observe that one, I'll write that down. Adam and Eve were created by God after God created the heavens and the earth. Since nobody was there, and since you cannot repeat the origins of this heaven and this earth to observe that experiment, it can only be a theory, whatever you espouse. By faith, we believe that God framed the world, the physical universe, all of its origins, all of its administrations and operations, so that the things which we see were made from things that were invisible. Now, your professors will teach you that you are a cosmic accident. Doesn't that elevate you, make you feel good? You're an accident. Fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstance. We don't know why, but here you are. But we figure it this way. Whenever you have a thing, there must be a preceding thought. Wherever there is a thought, there must have been a thinker to produce that thought. For instance, this auditorium didn't ooze up out of the ground. There's a design behind it. I have often wondered at the designers who did design it, but nonetheless, we have blueprints in the office. This thing was designed. Or this little clock that I have here to tell me when to quit. Um, This did not evolve. What if I said, you know, millions of years ago, a bunch of rocks and oils were flowing down a riverbed. And it took a long time, thousands, millions of years really, but eventually um, form started coming to this item and uh, glass metal and even this little fake brass just evolved and After millions more years, there was this guy who heard this ticking noise by the riverbed. And ever since that time, it takes a licking and goes on ticking. (laughs) You'd say, that's absurd. That watch, that clock, shows design. Somebody designed it. All right. I look at my body. I think it reflects design. Design. You have 30 trillion cells that compose your body, roughly give or take a few million, billion. In each one of those cells, you have a nucleus with millions of things happening. It's like a little metropolis. Messengers are being received and given constantly in each nucleus of each cell, the 30 trillion cells in your body. Inside each cell, you've got those chromosomes, the genetic coded information that tell every cell how to act from birth to death. It's an incredible scrunched up group of chromosomes, genetic material. Scientists tell us that if you took one cell of your body, translated the genetic code into written information, like into a book, you'd have 4,000 volumes produced from one cell. That means you could stack this stage full of books. That's the information in one of the cells of your body. If you took all of the cells of your body, translated it into written information, you could fill the Grand Canyon with books. Grand Canyon's 200 miles long, between 3 and 20 miles wide, and a mile or so deep. You could fill it 40 times to overflowing with the coded information in book form from one human body. It just sort of happened. I'm sorry, I can't believe that. I don't think I'm a fortuitous occurrence of an accidental circumstance. By faith, I believe that God framed the heavens and the earth. It's funny, but even though evolution contradicts Entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, that everything tends toward disorganization and simplicity rather than organization and order. Intelligent minds still believe in it and push it. You know why? A few reasons. Intelligent people want to feel that there's other people who agree with them. And most people believe in evolution because they think most intelligent people believe in evolution. And I want to be intelligent. I don't want to be like a dummy. So I'm going to say, oh, I believe in that. Of course, everybody knows it. Secondly, the minute you admit That there is a creation, you admit there is a creator, and you admit that you are accountable to him. And you can't live any way you desire to. But you're accountable to a holy God. That makes people uneasy. Better to come up with an alternate theory. But the third and basic reason why people believe in it is because sin blinds people from the truth. And whenever you reject the truth, you look for an alternate theory. And you couch it and you clothe it in scientific words and make people applaud it. But it's just a theory. But I want you to notice the end part of verse 3 as we close. You see that the man of faith is always ahead of the man of the world. For it says, So that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. That is, the visible world is made from materials you can't see. It wasn't until the 20th century that scientists found that that was the truth. That visible matter is comprised of subatomic and atomic particles, gases, things you can't see with your naked eye, but put together they become visible. This was written in the first century when the best scientific minds said there were only four things that comprise matter, fire, soil, water, and air. But by faith we believe that. Let's sum it up. The essence of faith, a solid confidence that moves us into action. That's the essence of faith. We're moved by conviction that God is reliable. Then, the effect of faith, God puts a stamp of approval in our lives. We know that we're approved by God when we live lives of faith. And finally, the ultimate example, the first example in the Bible is that of creation. God designed the heavens and the earth. An exciting life, a life of faith. There was once an unbelieving lecturer who was speaking to an audience on how stupid it is to be religious. And it's even more stupid if you're a Christian than That's the worst of all of them, he said. Everybody applauded him. At the end of the lecture, he said, are there any questions? Well, there was a town drunk in the back of the auditorium who had become a Christian, and he walked forward with an orange, peeling it, eating it as he went. Stood up in the front of the auditorium and just kept eating his orange. Finally, the lecturer said, do you have a question? He said, yeah, I have a question after he swallowed the last segment of orange. Was the orange I just ate sweet or sour? The lecturer said, you idiot. How would I know? I didn't eat it. And that converted town drunk looked up at the lecturer and he said, And how can you know anything about Christ if you haven't tried him? So many people are experts on religious faith, and they're so naive. Have you tried Jesus Christ? Have you jumped through that hole and said, God, catch me? you got everything to gain. Try it. There's a lot of people, as you can see here, who have tried it, and they live a life of faith with God's approval on it. Why don't you try it? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us as a gift that ability to have confidence in you, a firm foundation that prompts us into action. And that as we live that way, we bear your stamp of approval. Lord, we thank you for your creation. We thank you, Lord, that as we look at your word and with that clutching intensity of a drowning man, we say it's reliable because... I know my God, and He said it. And there's enough evidence that I see in the Scripture. And there's enough evidence in the changes of my own life that would cause me to live a life of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.